Well, it seems to be the season of liberation. It begins with the trivial, the liberation of our toes from heavy socks and boots. That freeing feeling we have as we exit the house for the first time without a coat. The impulse to clean and fluff and freshen as we push out the cobwebs and liberate our houses and apartments from the dust and quiet of winter. Some of you who came in by the front this morning saw our own Todd Wayman liberated from the usual constraints of dress as he welcomed spring with his flower hat. We are feeling free. Our children begin a new unit in their classes this morning with the story that we shared together. Their theme of liberation, as Mary said, will continue to spring festival, our longtime tradition of welcoming in the new possibilities of spring and freeing our spirits for what lies ahead. And soon enough, our Jewish brothers and sisters, and some of us too, will celebrate Passover, which honors one of the greatest liberation stories we have the deliverance of the people of Israel from enslavement by a cruel pharaoh. Most of you, I imagine, know at least the bones of this story, the Cliff Notes version. A new pharaoh forgot the earlier partnership between the Israelites and the Egyptians, and fearful of the Israelites' power, enslaved them. Moses, a young Israelite reared because of his own special birth story among Egyptian royalty, hears a call to free his people. Through his leadership, God's intervention in the form of seven plagues, and the Israelites' people's willingness to trust and readiness to run, Moses leads his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and off toward the land of milk and honey. Of course, it takes another 40 years to get to that land, and Moses doesn't even make it. But that's another story for another time. I am sure it will show up in one of my platforms eventually. People involved in congregational life can never pass up the opportunity to talk about wandering in the wilderness. This story of Moses' liberation of his people is one of the most beloved stories of the Hebrew Bible resonating far beyond its original location in Jewish tradition, it has become a favorite of Christians as well. It's inspired art and music across centuries, millennia really. After all, how many stories can claim a Cecil B. DeMille film and a feature-length animated movie? It's a rich and beautifully written story, which is one reason that I think it's captured the imagination of so many people. But there's a deeper reason, too. The story of liberation, of the struggle for freedom, is at its heart a very human story, and one that speaks to our deepest religious impulses and hopes. The liberation of the Israelites has been one of the key stories of African-American Christianity and was particularly powerful during American slavery. And in a broader sense, the story, the importance of liberation, resonates for all of us who have been enslaved or have seen enslavement, physical, mental, and spiritual. 
Liberation is at the heart of the Christian story, too, for many people. Indeed, there's a whole wing of Christianity, particularly within the Catholic movement, called liberation theology. Liberation theology interprets Jesus' teachings as being inherently about the liberation of people from political, social, and economic injustice. This movement, which began in small campesinos in Latin America, tends to create justice-making relational churches. Religion and religious stories in this movement are for the people, interpreted by the people, and then used as the basis for work with the people. But why am I talking about all these other religions and religious stories? After all, here we are in an ethical society, a humanistic religious community. These stories, with their miracles and their ancient settings, these aren't really our stories, after all. Well, they aren't. Then again, they are. It all depends, I think, on your definition of humanism. In some of my earliest religious training, I was taught and perhaps sometimes assumed, that humanism meant the opposite of theism, that humanism was simply the alternative to a more traditional religious framework. It was the not theology, as in, well, we certainly don't believe that. And I have to confess, that understanding, in that, ter that term, in that understanding, didn't hold much appeal for me. Raised in a liberal religious tradition myself, I wasn't looking for alternatives. And I wasn't looking for negatives, for not that's. Over time, though, my understanding of and appreciation for humanism has grown. And so has my definition. Now I like to talk about humanism as a love for the human spirit, a shared hope in the power of human possibility, a deep belief in human worth. It's the idea of locating our work for the world and our faith in the, in the future in the human realm, of choosing to bind our lot up with that of all of humanity and the world that humanity shares. And with that definition of humanism, the one that really sings to me, I suddenly find that all those traditional religious liberation stories begin to sing to me as well. Because behind the miracles, or rather with or without the miracles, those stories are about the struggle of a people to be free. The struggle of a people to find a way out of whatever binds them. And as we've already seen with liberation theology, Religious stories often inspire very human action. Action that is all about this world and our part in it. It's that spirit, that inspiration that I saw this past Monday evening at a Washington Interfaith Network rally that brought more than a thousand people, including a troop of West members, to a Baptist church in southeast D.C., the rally called on the mayor to support a jobs initiative for D.C. residents who will be trained in weatherproofing houses. Ward 8, where that church is located, has a 30% unemployment rate. 
the rally was an example of some great community organizing, some very practical political maneuvering, and a truly religious call for accountability, for hope, for freedom. Liberate us from our desperation, the church members cried out. Liberate us from fear and economic disaster. Liberate us because we are worthy than, of better than this. That, for me, is the humanistic impulse that runs through liberation stories, that runs through religious traditions. That belief in the worth of every human being, the preciousness of human potential. Now, I'm not naive. I don't think that every religion, or at least every permutation of religion, holds that belief. As religious educator Sophia Lyon-Foss wrote, it matters what we believe. Some beliefs are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feeling of being especially privileged. Other beliefs are expansive and lead the way into wider and deeper sympathies. There's no question in my mind that Foss is right, that there are some religious leaders who would tell us that every person does not have dignity, that some are less worthy than others. Fundamentalism is ugly in every form, but it is most dangerous when it draws limits on human worth because those are the times when it allows, when it encourages the mental or spiritual or physical enslavement of whole peoples. But even while some religious teaching divides people, enslaves people, there are religious traditions that work against that enslavement, that hold up the call to the liberation of the human spirit. I tend to think that these teachings are at the heart of religion, certainly the heart of progressive religion in all its forms. As just a tiny plug, at the end of March I'll be teaching a three-week class on the humanistic impulse in world religions. I'd love for you to join me as we explore what is really our own history. Because this teaching that humanity is valuable and good can be found throughout religious history. In the Jewish and Christian traditions, it is found in the idea that each person is made in the image of God, imago Dei, that demands care of the worth of every individual. This principle was at the heart of some of the work of early American Unitarians in the 19th century, when Unitarianism was still part of the Christian family. Rejecting the idea of original sin and the depravity of the human spirit held by their Calvinist forebearers, Unitarians believed that every human being was born with the possibility of goodness. Christian humanism extends much further back than that, though, to the Renaissance and its elevated understanding of human worth. During the Enlightenment in 18th century Europe, this belief in human worth and human beauty grew in some circles, even as it created a backlash among religious conservatives. And throughout history, we've seen this back and forth as people have struggled with the tension between a belief in human worth and an acknowledgement of human evil. 
and as the humanistic impulse has woven through religious traditions across the globe. Because it's not easy, this impulse. It's not easy to maintain our belief in human worth, our affirmation of the essential dignity and preciousness and goodness of human life, when we see so much evil and injustice around us. On my dark days, I can understand the temptation to fall into despair, to divide people into good and bad, to imagine that the human spirit doesn't seem so great after all. Don't let anyone convince you that humanism isn't a faith statement. It requires great hope to live as though the world is as we wish it were. And it requires action. Action that is our own, that takes our fate into our hands and brings liberation. This is the action that good religion calls for, frankly, the justice that the right kinds of congregations ask us to create. We listen to liberation stories, we tell liberation stories to our children because they remind us both of the terror of enslavement and the possibility of freedom. As Reverend John Nichols writes, the miracle of Exodus is not whether or not the Red Sea parted. The miracle of Exodus is that a group of people finally realized for themselves, for us, and for all time that you cannot stay in Egypt. Any personal commitment that is not toward growing and changing, any religious commitment that is not toward goals beyond one's own personal welfare is a commitment toward slavery in Egypt. If that is true, if the Exodus story and any liberation story exists to remind us that we can and must get out of our own enslavement, then we as religious people, as humanists, are called to ask what our Egypt is today. Is it homophobia and heterosexism as a prom is canceled rather than allow a same-sex couple to attend? Is it racism as the election of our first African-American president inspires a movement focused on checking his birth certificate and protesters shout racist slurs at our Congressional Black Caucus? Is it fear and incivility and corporate personhood pulling our national legislature into political maneuverings while millions of Americans go without medical care and coverage? What are the chains that bind this country, that serve to belittle the human spirit? to deny the sacredness of human worth. Enslavement is the denial, I think, of human dignity. <clears throat> and so our work against enslavement of every kind is some of the holiest work we can do and the most radically humanistic. I loved hearing that the American Humanist Association decided to sponsor that prom in Mississippi the one canceled by the school board when they found out that a senior girl planned to bring her female date. Now, prom isn't exactly the promised land. 
At least it wasn't when I went. Maybe you had that limo corsage slow dance experience. But if we can deliver people to a really good prom, a prom where they are respected and loved for who they are, for the mere fact of their beautiful humanness, well, I'm for that. Liberation, of course, can't stop with prom, and it can't even stop with people. That wonderful story we shared with our children this morning, it asked us to imagine ourselves as the earth, dancing and spinning through the world. We have work to do to liberate the earth from the chains we have created around it, from the net of pollution and disease that ensnares it. Our task as religious humanists asks us to care for the lifeboat, the planet we occupy, just as we care for each other. And we're not the only ones that think that. One of the most fascinating things for me about the Green Movement is how it is pulling in folks from across the religious spectrum, Christians and Jews, evangelicals and Catholics, all of whom share that sense of responsibility to and care for the world. Who knew that recycling could heal the religious divide? The religious impulse really does lead us toward healing, toward liberation. But what about those of us who needed healing from the religious impulse, who came to Wes, perhaps, for liberation from liberation stories? There are harmful religious words out there, religious stories that beat down our spirits instead of build them up. And I know that for some of you, hearing old stories, even when they're told in a new way, is a reminder of a past that did anything but free your spirit. This is where we are lucky to have each other. We're lucky to have all the different experiences in this room, the people who love the old stories and the people who don't, the people who haven't even heard those stories because they came from a different tradition entirely. Thank you very much. We share an understanding of the gift of human worth, and so together we can piece out what that means in stories old and new. For many years, Wes has celebrated a humanist Seder. This year's is coming up in just two weeks on April 3rd. Mary, our community leader, writes the Haggadah for our Seder, and it's a weaving together of stories old and new, of stories that are ageless, wonderful, edifying, and morally genuine, and new stories that we are piecing together as we make our own meaning. It's not, as they say, your grandmother's Seder, unless you are one of the lucky few whose grandmother goes to Wes. <laughs> but it is a story about liberation, a story about the liberation of the human spirit and the liberation of the Israelites and the liberation of the world from the plagues that we ourselves create. We put together new words and old words. We laugh and cry and forgive each other for mistakes, and we find a way forward, a way out of whatever binds us and toward the freedom on the other side. 
And that is what we're here to do in the end. Whatever stories we love, whatever stories we remember or make up for ourselves or believe in because they just feel right, we know we are humanists because of what the stories ask us to do. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, imagined a religion where people of different beliefs, people who loved different stories about the world, could come together and fight for what was good and just and right. A a religion where we felt the bonds of slavery, where we saw the ways that we and others were not free, and then did something about it. He knew which part of the story was important, which part still speaks to us and asks us to take action. I know it, too, when I look around at the injustice in the world, at the incivility and fear in our own country, at the actual continued enslavement of whole peoples around the globe, at the billions of people who, because of poverty and disease, because of inner-city violence and poor educational opportunities, because of the inattention of the wealthy part of the world, live without hope. I know the part of the story that is important, and I will keep on telling it until liberation has come indeed. I know the story, and the story says, set my people free.